the Royal Exchange, a Temple of Concord in Cheapside, and a Garden of Plenty in Fleet Street. The King was a man who, like his devout Catholic mother, Queen Henrietta Maria, understood the importance of ceremony. The more extravagant, the better. That tiny, formidable lady had led an army of three thousand men to Oxford and had dressed and lived as a soldier, yet could spend thousands on entertainments for the king. For her son, the streets had been cleaned and gravelled and rails erected to keep the crowd a suitable distance from the royal party. Thousands were expected to line the route. As for the coronation itself, the writer described in fulsome detail what the new king would be wearing, who, with his brother James, would accompany him, and what the ceremony, designed by the Garter King of Arms himself, would entail. And he reminded his readers that, had he not died of smallpox six months earlier, the king's brother Henry would also have been at his side. As Thomas read on, he learned who had made the royal shoes, the royal wig, and each item of His Majesty's magnificent coronation robes. The people of London were about to witness the grandest ceremony the city had ever seen, as befitted a monarch restored to his rightful throne after twelve years of dreary Puritanism, and the great day for which all of England had been waiting would end with a wondrous display of fireworks. Thomas disliked fireworks and hoped that he would not be expected to attend. The coronation itself would be quite sufficient. When he turned the page, Thomas's eye was immediately caught by the headline of the next story. Another murder in Pudding Lane. Sir Montfort Babb found dead. Coroner believes robbery again the motive. Thomas caught his breath. There used to be Babs in Hampshire, and he remembered Sir Montford as a rather vague, kindly man, not a man you would expect to find with his throat cut in a filthy London alley. And he was surprised to find the murder of a single unknown man reported in the news sheet, especially when those who had sat in judgment on the king's father or taken any part in his trial were being arrested and executed every week. Perhaps the writer thought it best to spare his readers' sensibilities. Hanging, drawing and quartering, a traitor's death, was a gruesome, sickening affair. Thomas read on. Sir Montfort's body had been found in Pudding Lane two nights earlier near the Honest Werryman alehouse. He had been attacked from behind and his throat cut. As his pockets were empty, the coroner, Master Seymour Manners had concluded that the motive was robbery. It was not known why Sir Montford had been alone in a dark street best known for its low taverns and baker's shops, but there were no witnesses and no other clues. This was the second such murder in the space of three weeks, the previous victim having been a Mr Matthew Smith, also robbed and found with his throat cut in Pudding Lane. The coroner had expressed the view that both victims died at the same hand. Like Mr Smith, Sir Montford Babb was a respectable gentleman, well known in the coffee houses of the city. He had no known enemies, and his distraught widow had been unable to shed any light on the matter. With the murderer still at large, gentlemen were advised to take great care on the streets at night. Thomas put aside the news sheet and closed his eyes. 
he pictured a whiskery old face, a soft smile and a Hampshire voice. Montfort Bab had been a harmless old gentleman. May his murderer be brought quickly to justice. And may Thomas Hill's visit to London be a brief one. Already he missed his books, his friends and the Hampshire countryside. Even for a coronation, London was no place for a man who valued his peace. At the southern end of the bridge, the coach pulled up. Thomas alighted and his bags were handed down. He paid the coachman, tried not to look at the heads impaled on spikes over the gate and, followed by two boys carrying the bags, set off on foot across the bridge. He did not care to take a river wherry up to Westminster Steps, nor was it worth attempting the bridge in a coach. Both sides of it were lined by tall buildings which met in the middle and formed a narrow tunnel through which all traffic had to pass. It would be quicker and easier to make the crossing on foot.